that message. The first being unity, which was very key, but the second one was obedience. So unity and obedience. And what we saw here is the reason why the Israelites were successful in completing this monumental task was the fact that they were unified, they were focused upon doing God's will and not doing their own will, okay? This is instrumental for us. They were unified. Now, we saw, we saw in Ephesians 4, we saw the, the principle shared as one body and as one spirit. And what we learned last week was when we're unified as a body, when we're unified and we work together, we can accomplish great things for God. But when we're divided, when we're not working together, we can work very, very hard and accomplish nothing for God. So there's a great importance to unity. Then there's that aspect of obedience. So we saw unity first and then obedience. And obedience is absolutely key to our Christian walk. Absolutely key. What we saw with the Israelites as an example was the fact that they were completely obedient and following exactly what God told them to do and adhering to God's, God's instructions to them. They delivered exactly what they were told to do. And what we saw was the fact that uh, the result of that was that God not only accepted everything that they brought, but God actually blessed them on top of it. So he accepted their work and he blessed them. And see, that's just so cool because God cannot help himself because of his love for humanity, because of his love for his children. He cannot help himself but from blessing us. That's just who he is. So it's his personality. It's who he is at his core. And what we had last week was this day of Thanksgiving for all of us, right? We had a day of Thanksgiving. And I hope that you enjoyed that day and you were able to count your blessings, right? That was what that day is about, counting your blessings and thinking, wow, look at all that I've been given. And as a Christian, every day should be Thanksgiving. Realistically, if you are a born-again child of God, consider the fact that God has given you the most incredible gift. He's offered you the gift of salvation. If you've received it, you have been given more than you deserve. I've been given way more than I deserve. If all we got was salvation, that's all we got out of this life. We don't deserve it. God gave it out of love. We've been given more than we deserve. But on top of that, how many of us have experienced blessings outside of salvation? Yeah. We can make, man, we can write down all of our blessings. We could write a phone book of all of our blessings. If you really thought about it, the ability to use our hands. As soon as someone loses the ability to use their hand, they remember the blessing of using that hand. But what we as our human beings, as we do things like this, you know, we are, oh, yeah, of course I can use my hand. Well, it's just, it's the way I, God gave it to me. It's mine. But when it's taken away, suddenly it has greater value. So we say, look, you know, God's given us so many things. And what we saw here was the fact that because of their obedience, they were here, they were, they were considering this principle of unity, this considering this principle of obedience. So what we saw was they worked together, and because they worked together, they accomplished what God called them to do. And we saw, and we talked about last week, that as a church, if we're unified, we can do great things for God. If our family is unified, we can do great things for God. Why do you think the devil spends so much time and energy trying to destroy families, right? Because the family is the core. He wants to destroy and divide families because if they're not unified, guess what? God can't really use them. They've got to come together. But when we, find, when we combine unity and obedience, the impossible becomes possible. God can do incredible things when we become unified. And in our Bible study on Wednesday night, I made a plea to you guys. I made a plea, and I pray that he watched it. If you haven't watched that message, please go watch it. It's extremely important. But the plea in that message was, hey, you know what? You and I need to be unified and obedient to what God's called us to do. 
as the body of Christ, we've been given a job, which is to share the gospel, the good news with this lost world. That's what we've been given and assigned to do. That's God's instructions to us. And, when I, and, and thank God for all of you that heard, because we did get notes and, and little uh, reminders and people sending us saying, hey, you know what? This is my one. This is the one that I'm praying for. This is the one I'm asking God to use me to reach. And I thank God for that. You know what? And we've been diligent to pray and we'll continue to pray for your one. We want God to bring them to salvation. So as we're working through this, understand you and I can accomplish great things if we work together and we do what it is God's called us to do. But today, as I said, we're going to finish up Exodus 40. And what's so cool about Exodus 40 is the fact that what we've been working towards this entire time, which is God's arrival on the earth, that indwelling of God coming down into the tabernacle, guess what? Exodus 40 is where it's going to happen. But it doesn't happen yet. We're going to get to it in a few weeks. But until then, there's some things that need to be put in place in order to get there. We followed instructions up to a point where there's some additional instructions this morning. And we're going to take a look into them at our message, which is called Setting Our House in order. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, God, for giving this opportunity for us to be in your house. Uh, Lord, for the opportunity we have to hear from you, from your word, God. Thank you for the incredible depth of the word of God, the compl complexity that it contains. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to me through this week, Lord God, as I've written the message. And Lord, I tried to follow exactly what you've called me to do. And Lord, I pray that today I would get out of the way, Lord, that the message would come from you, uh, Lord, from what you want for us and not from me. Lord, I pray that you'll take the human element out of the message and, Lord, speak to all of us. Help me to be a hearer of the word as well, God. Speak to us, Lord, and do great things in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're moving into this in Exodus chapter number 40, we're going to go from verse 1 to verse 8. That's how far we're going to get today, verse 1 to verse 8. So verse 1 says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Understand, we're in instruction mode right now. They're not doing it. He's telling them what they're going to do. What we see is God gives additional instructions once the first instructions have been followed. Okay, This is important. They completed the first one. There's, and understand, and again, this is very specific instructions. God's giving them a day and a time. God's using their new calendar, okay? He's giving their new calendar. That new calendar was established. If we go back just before the Passover, God established the calendar for the Israelites. If we go to Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, okay, so we know where they are, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Okay? He says, look, I'm establishing your calendar, and it's going to be at this time. So we see this, the calendar that God's using is the one he established for the Israelites. And what we see here is the fact that this initial exodus, uh, this setting up of the, of, the, of the tabernacle, is going to be one year after they left, the, left Egypt. So notice that God waited until they had additional, they waited to give them additional guidance until he, had, until he made certain that they had followed the instructions first, Okay? So he's given them them in stages. So what we see here is that obedience unlocks additional revelation. Obedience unlocks additional revelation. Romans 16, verses 25 through 26 is this. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. This is Jesus. He says, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. Okay, mystery is something that exists. We just don't know it yet. There's an answer, but we know, or maybe something that's there that's apparent, but we can't see it yet. And it says here, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. Okay, this is something that's been established. It's been in the Old Testament the whole time. Verse 26, but now is made manifest 
and by the scriptures of the prophets, by the Old Testament, he says, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations. He says, now he's going to tell us this for the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. Obedience is, doing, is nothing more than doing what we're told, right? If a child is obedient, you say, hey, go clean your room. And man, they go clean their room, right? Partial obedience is disobedience, right? You can't say, I'm going to go clean my room. And your mom says, and make up your bed too. And you clean your room, but you don't make your bed. She isn't going to walk in there and go, well done, you did the job. She's going to go, oh, yeah, uh, uh, uh. disobedience. Where's that bed? Take care of that, right? So what happens with us, a lot of times we want to do partial obedience and think that that's going to be good enough. But God says, no, obedience is complete. Then we see faithfulness, faithfulness, which goes hand in hand with obedience, okay? Those two work together. Uh, what you see is obedience is really, that's our, our allegiance or our devotion. Faithfulness is the application of our devotion and our allegiance. This is where it's put into action. And so here we are in church, all right? We're here, we're being faithful, we're being obedient. We're here, hey God, you know what? Give me a revelation. I wanna grow in my faith. Praise the Lord that you're here for that purpose. Being obedient and faithful. Or maybe we go to the word of God, man. Hey, you know what? I'm gonna read today. Because you know what? I wanna have deeper understanding. I wanna, when I'm done today, I'm gonna have a deeper knowledge of God. That's my desire, okay? So we have that heart. We want the mysteries of God to be revealed to us. Those that are truly studying the word of God, that's your desire. You're looking for additional instructions, right? But if we look at this principle, that God doesn't give additional information until the first has been, has been completed, okay? So there's a principle here. So if we look at this and we go, look, you know what? Are we living in obedience to the truths from God's word that we already know, okay? Are we applying what we already know? Are we already obedient to what it is God's called us to do, okay? So I wrote down a list of five. Are we walking by faith and not by sight? As it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Are we walking in the spirit that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh? Like in Galatians 5, 16. Are we, are we walking through fearful times yet without fear? As it tells us in Psalms 23, 4. Are we, are we walking through fires and yet not allowing it to burn us because we're trusting in God through Isaiah 43 too? Are we walking in love and honoring God like Ephesians 5, 2 says? See, we hear these and we go, whoa, I'm struggling with that one. Uh, number one, uh, and the fear one. Number two, I, yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble with that. Am I walking in the spirit that I'm not feeling like, oh, you know what, yeah, I'm struggling there. Yet we want to know more. God, help me to go to the next level in my spiritual growth. Problem is, when it comes to step one, we haven't even completed that. We want additional revelations, and yet we find ourselves struggling to do what it is that we already know we're supposed to do. See, the Bible's not just to inform us. It's to transform us. It's supposed to change us, our lives. It's supposed to change who we are. It's not so that you have knowledge of God. It's so that God has a greater knowledge of you, and you have a greater knowledge of him through your growth, through your development, and through your surrender of yourself. We're to get out of the way. It's our own struggle. So the thing is, here we see uh, when we approach God's word, like the Israelites, if we'll do what they did, like the first instructions, man, they were given exactly what God told them to do. And what happens is because they did that, God now increases their understanding. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get to that presence of God, right? They're trying to get to the intimacy with God. That's the goal that God's going to come down. But all these steps that they're following are all approaching towards that end result. And they needed to finish that one in order to move on to the next. God rewards obedient faithfulness. 
it's like this. If you go to the, let's say you have a trainer, right? And let's say you go, I'm gonna meet with my trainer once a month. You're gonna go to the gym and you're gonna meet with your trainer. And you go to the gym and you meet them on the, on the first day of the month and boy, they say, okay, you know, I'm, gonna do, I'm gonna give you a regimen. This is what you're gonna do. And what we're gonna do is at the end of the month, we're gonna test your results, okay? Well, let's say you're gonna work on your bench press. This is what you're gonna do for the next 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, we're gonna test your bench and we're gonna test your results. Great, hot diggity dog. Here's your instructions. All right, great. You go to the gym the first day after they leave. And halfway through the workout, you're like, man, this is really hard. <laughs> really hard. I'm going to sort of alter it and do it my way. I'm going to take out, I know he told me all this other stuff, but you know what, I think this is more comfortable, and I really like doing it this way. And then at the end of the 30 days, we meet with our coach, and he goes, okay, let's check your results. And we have hardly any gain whatsoever. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But did you, did you do what I told you? Ah, you know, didn't really fit my life the way I wanted it to, so I kind of changed it, and this is what I'm doing now. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're never going to get to the next step unless you do the one that you're on. And see, when we think about it that way, we go, that's silly. But in our spiritual walk, what are we doing? Are we actively working to be, to be the best Christian we can so that God can open up the mysteries of his word so that we can grow in our faith? Can we become who God's called us to be because we're becoming faithful? So the second thing we learn is the fact that we can't get to step one until we've completed. We can't get to step two unless, until we've completed step one, right? There's a stair-step process here. Anyone who's ever purchased furniture from Ikea <laughs> or you tried to put together a gas grill, gracious, you know if you don't do step one, step two doesn't work out, man. And if you just decide to do it on your own and not have instructions, those are things you don't want to do because you end up with a whole lot of extra bolts and screws and your, your grill's all wobbly and you're like, I don't know if you should turn this on, honey. I think this seems dangerous, right? So we follow the instructions, but you got to do step one before you get to step two. And this is the thing. God's trying to say, hey, look, you know what? Until we're obedient to do what we know, we're not going to gain in our understanding. We're not going to gain in our responsibilities that God's going to entrust us with. They're not going to get further insight. The principle of this, uh, of God rewarding faithfulness, is, is spelled out for us in the, par the, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. So in this story, what happens is God is laying out. He's saying, look, he gives this example talking about faithfulness, and he has servants in this example. And some of the servants, he entrusts talents, his, his, these monies. And what happens is with these men, some of them are faithful. Boy, they go out and they double what they're given. But then there's another one who doesn't do anything. He doesn't do a thing, and he faces a punishment. But what we find is God rewards those that are faithful. Matthew 25, 23 says this. His Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, okay? The first, the first thing I entrust you, step one, you've done. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So faithfulness is rewarded, and unfaithfulness is punished. It's punished. There's judgment for it. So we must first do the thing that we've been entrusted to do if we're going to get an increase. So because God's people have been obedient and faithful in following God's instructions, we see here that the next steps, these indications, they're trying to bring God down to earth. That's what they're trying to work towards. And the next step is going to be how do we set up the tabernacle? How do we do it? We built all the parts and pieces. Now what we're going to happen is God's going to tell them how we put it together. Okay? They're working towards intimacy with God, and this is key to it. Verse number three, and thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony and cover the ark with the veil. Okay, so you're to put therein the ark of the testimony and cover the ark with the veil. Again, we see God following the same pattern that he's followed again and again and again from the most holy 
to the least holy. He starts with the ark. The ark is the absolute heart of this structure. It is inc incredibly important. So the ark with its mercy seat, which is the lid, and the mercy seat is the place where God's presence is going to manifest itself. It's where God's going to come down to earth. That's going to be the place where the holy priest is, the, the, the high priest is going to pour the blood of atonement for the sins of the people and the, his own sin upon that mercy seat. But what you'll find is, so where the placement of the ark is, is extremely vital. This is the heart of everything. And what you need to realize also is the fact that the Holy of Holies, when the Ark of the Covenant is sitting inside of the Holy of Holies, that is the holiest place on the entire planet Earth. Every square inch of this planet, that little area at about 8 by 10 is the holiest place on the entire planet. It's a place of intimacy, a place of intimacy. Then we see here that it tells us they're supposed to hang the veil, okay? The veil is the separation. What happens? They're going to hang the veil. And what happens with that veil is that veil is really a picture. It is a picture of something. It is a, a, a physical representation of the spiritual division between God and man, okay? So here's a holy God and a sinful people. This is the very thing that Jesus destroyed at his death. Okay. In Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51, it says this, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He died. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Again, this is a physical representation, a picturing of a spiritual reality. Okay? The division that existed before. This is what's happening between God and man in the spiritual realm. is showing us a physical representation of that. So this impenetrable separation between God, holy God, and, and sinful man has been broken, has been destroyed through the power of the holy blood of Jesus Christ. This is the power of redemption, okay? The power of redemption. Hebrews 9, verses 19 through 26 says this, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, so we're back to Moses, he's using the example of the Exodus, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled, what, sprinkled both the book and the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament, this is God's promise, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. So this is talking about right where we are. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And listen to this last part. And without shedding of blood is no remission. God says there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. That is an absolute essential. It cannot happen otherwise. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Okay, when he says the patterns of the things in heaven, he's saying this tabernacle is a pattern. It's a picture of what is real in heaven. This is a model. This is a facsimile of heaven. Notice this. He says, he says that they should be purified with these, with the animal's blood. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence. Oh, no, no, no. But the heavenly things themselves, pattern things them should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he says, look, this animal blood for the spiritual picture, what we're talking about here, the real one, the real pattern that's in heaven, this animal blood's not going to do it. There's got to be something more pure than the animal blood. And this is verse number 24 says this, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. He's not going into the physical tabernacle, which are the figures. Notice the word figures. That means the pictures, the pictures of the true. Okay, This is a figure of the true, but into heaven itself. He goes into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the place in the holy place every year with blood, blood, with blood of others. He says, look, this is not a matter of Jesus isn't going to have to do this year after year after year. This is a different type of sacrifice. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Otherwise, he'd have to die again and again and again. But he says this, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what we see pictured in this tabernacle is exactly what God did in the spiritual realm. That the sins, the sins that were paid for were for the sins of the world through that holy blood, that picture of Christ. So remember the tabernacle is the single richest source of pictures and types in the entire Bible. Okay? So God's instructions continue here. So they, they're to then put the, put the ark in place and then they're supposed to step back and hang the veil, okay? So remember, this is a matter of sanctification, holiness. So they're going to put the ark in place. They're going to get everything set. They're going to back back up the structures around them. They're going to lift the veil, put it in place, and step outside. So no one's going to go. This is going to be a stair-step process. They're working their way from the inside out. So they hang the veil, and nobody's going to go back in there. Verse 4, And thou shalt bring in the table and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. And thou shalt bring in the candlestick and light the lamps thereof. So next, the table of showbread that we studied in the past. That table of showbread is now going to be brought in. Remember, it's a picture of the Word of God. It's a picture of the Word of God. It says that the things that are supposed to be placed upon it are to be set in order. Okay, Those are 12 loaves of bread set in two rows of six. Six rows of six, six, six. That's 66. There are 66 books in the Bible. Okay, It is a picture of the Word of God. No more, no less. It's to be set up exactly as God said. So as we studied in the past, it's supposed to be set against the north wall, okay? So as they hung the veil, they're stepping back. So here on their right, that's where this table of showbread is going to go. And we saw there that that aspect of the, uh, this is a place of worship. It's in the holy place. There's the, nose to, the, the holy of holies. Now we're in the holy place. This table of showbread sitting here, and this is a place of worship. The first aspect of worship being this, this, the Bible, the word of God. Then there's the, the spirit, which is represented in the next item that is put in place, which is the golden candlestick, okay? Now, when the golden candlestick is brought in and it's lit, all seven lamps of it are lit, it's going to become the only source of light in this entire thing. The tabernacle was designed so that it would be absolutely opaque and have no light in it whatsoever. So the only light would not be pouring in from any other edge. The only light is, is the candlestick. And again, remember, we saw that candlestick as a picture of the spirit. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit, the light of God, the light of God that dwells, that dwells within us, within the hearts of believers. So when Jesus ascended, understand, when he ascended after his death and after his resurrection, when he left this earth, when Jesus was here, he was the light of the world, okay? So when Jesus left this earth, this earth fell into a spiritual night, a spiritual night. So in the fact of this spiritual night, you and I are here, in this spiritual night, and it will not be, this night will not end until Jesus returns, okay? When Jesus comes back as the light of the world, there will come a dawning or a sunrise, okay? Listen to this in Malachi 4, verse 2 says this, but unto you that fear my name shall the sun, notice how it's spelled, the S-U-N, capital S-U-N, the sun of righteousness arise, okay? This is the return of the Lord. The spiritual night's coming to an end with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. He says, the son of righteousness. It's capital S-U-N. It's talking about the return of the Lord, the end of the spiritual night. So right now, you and I are living in a spiritual night, 
And because it is dark, God gives us a command that we're supposed to shine in the darkness. Let your light so shine, because guess what? People are in the midst of darkness. What do people do in darkness? They fumble and bumble. They stumble around. They look for answers. Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's all the things they're asking, right? They don't know why they're here. They're trying to find what the purpose of life is. We know what it is. And the thing is, we're supposed to be a light, because what does people do in the darkness? What happens if you see a light in the darkness? What happens? You're drawn to it. You're drawn to it. Even if someone lights a match in the back of a cave that's pitch black, you'll go to the match because that's what we do. Problem is, in our world today, we have a lot of people that are false lights, people that profess themselves to be lights, and they fake it. But when the person gets to them, they go, well, you know what? You're just darkness like me. You're just as lost as I am. That's why it's important that we live this life for the Lord out of obedience and unity with him. Remember, the God tells us in Philippians 2 that we're supposed to shine not because we are lights, but we shine as lights. We're supposed to make a difference in the world around us. Philippians 2.15 says this, that ye may be blameless, listen, blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, that you're living right for the Lord. And if you're living for the Lord in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, okay? A perverse, a crooked and perverse nation is a place of darkness, spiritual darkness. These people are consumed with darkness. And it says here, among whom? Them. Ye shine as lights in the world. Your life should shine into the life of someone else. When we're talking about our one, that's what we're praying for. God, let my life shine into their life. Let them see a difference in me. How do I shine brightly? Righteousness. I work on my walk with God. I work on my obedience to God. I work in unity with the body and unity with the Lord. God uses us. Understand that the spirit of God doesn't live like people believe. It lives in rocks and trees and bushes and spirit animals and stuff like that. That's not where God, that's not where the spirit of God lives. The spirit of God lives in only one place, uniquely in the heart of born again believers. That is the only place that he dwells on this planet. So until Jesus returns, that's the source. So we see here there's two instruments of worship in this holy place, okay? This is a place of worship. The first one being the Spirit of God, or the, the, the Spirit of God we just spoke about, and then the Word of God, the truth, okay? John 4, 23 and 24 says this, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But then there's another way. There's another way. So we've got the, the table of showbread sitting here. We've got the candlestick over here. And then there's something else that's coming. So after the table of showbread on the north wall and the golden candlestick on the south, they are to bring in this altar of incense, verse number five. Thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle, okay? So he says, now what's gonna happen? We're gonna have an opportunity to worship God in another way. This is gonna be through the altar of incense. Now we saw what's interesting about this altar of incense. These are sitting on either side like this, but the altar of incense is pushed right up against the veil. It's right up close, way, way, way closer than anything else. It's just right there, just outside of where the ark is positioned, outside the veil. And what's cool about that is because now as they light the incense and as the smoke rolls up the curtain, it's going to cascade over the curtain into the holy holies, right? So there's something unique about this one. This one has access into the presence of God. The others are limited here. This one gives us access to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So the third instrument of worship is pictured. And we talked about this before. It's a picture of prayer. It's a picture of prayer. Our prayer, which gives us access to the Lord. 
We have access to God by way of prayer. We've been given this incredible gift. So as we cry out to God, God, God hears our prayers. But now, and there's a question. We're going to stop here just for a second because I've been asked this question. Well, does God hear the prayers of the lost person? As lost people cry out, does God respond to their prayers? Now, there's, an answer, there's two answers to this. There's yes and there's no, okay? Yes and no, and let me explain to you why I say that. Because what happens here, people, uh, if, if they're lost, they're going to, they're going to you know, cry out in different scenarios and situations. God, and, you know, God doesn't answer prayer and people complain. But understand this, God sees and hears everything. Okay? There's nothing that happens on this earth that God does not see it. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So God sees everything. Matthew 12.36 is this, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Okay? So obviously God hears and sees everything that they say. He hears their prayers. Now, whether he responds or not, this is where the no comes in. Because I want you to look at this in Isaiah 59, 2. It says this, For your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. That he will not hear. And that's a tough thing. Bottom line, what it's telling us, that, you know what? It's that our prayers, they go unheard. God does not hear the prayer. He does not hear it. Now, there's another aspect to it as well, which is this in 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, okay? That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. That means I'm asking this, this prayer is according to what God wants, what God's desire is, okay? And the only prayer that a lost person can truly pray that's according to God's will is for salvation because it is God's will that they be saved. 1 Timothy 2 forces this, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, okay? Consider the picture that we saw in the book of Exodus. Way back in Exodus 3, we looked a year and a half ago. In Exodus 3, what we saw there was the fact that, these, that we saw God respond to the cry of his people. God responds, and in Exodus 3, verse 7 says this, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've seen it all. I've watched it. 430 years, I've been watching it every day. I've been watching the screams, hearing the cries, all that stuff. It says, affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So he heard their cry. And what's different now is he's responding to it. So for 400 years, there's been silence. He's not responded. Because guess what? They've been doing it on their own. They've been suffering on their own. They've been carrying the weight on their own. And finally, when they cried out to God... Boom, instantly. And what we know about the Israelites is, guess what? They're a picture of us. And here we see them suffering under the bondage of slavery, right? They've got a taskmaster, Pharaoh, who rules over them. And they bear this burden for hundreds of years, trying to deal with it on their own. And then finally, it just gets to be too much. We just can't deal with this anymore. And instead of crying to one another, they cry out to God who they've had their back turned for all this time. And immediately, God responds. He's got a, a, he's got a deliverer already in waiting. Moses has been in the wilderness learning how to be a shepherd for 40 years. Because guess what? He's getting ready to be a shepherd for a couple million people. How do you lead? Guess what? He's been leading for months, for years and years and years and years and years. God says, I've got a man ready to go. And here he comes, man. The deliverer shows up in response to their call. And what does he do? 
He leads them to deliverance by way of the blood of a lamb. Passover lamb. That's the last one, man. When you get to the 10th plague, it's the blood of the lamb that delivers them. It's a picture of Jesus, guys. Because you and I, we're in bondage to our sin. We've got a taskmaster called Satan, and man, he's, he rules over us. And we're caught up in the world, and Egypt is a picture of the world. And here we are in the world, and we're caught up in sin. And it rules over us, it controls us, and we carry the weight of it, and we try to deal with it on our own. For 34 years, I tried to do it on my own. And after 34 years, I finally said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. And I cried out, and guess what? He responded immediately. He had a, a deliverer already waiting. Jesus Christ. And it was by way of the blood of that lamb that I was delivered. Do you see the picture? It's so awesome. And God's trying to teach us to these pictures in the Old Testament. Listen to what John said. First in, uh, where am I at? I'm not even, I don't even remember my notes for a while. Goodness gracious, I'm over here. John 129 says this, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him. This is John the Baptist and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. God will always respond to a prayer for salvation. No matter where someone is, no matter how broken they may be, no matter what the situation or the scenario. But for his children, it's a different story. Psalm 34, 15 says this, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Now, you and I, we hear that righteous, and you go, oh, man. Guys, we're not righteous on our own. We're not righteous on our own, not by any stretch of the imagination. But we are through Christ. We are through our salvation. Our salvation is what delivers us. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says this, who, who, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. So the righteousness we gained through Christ, we pray to God. James 5, 16 says this, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that ye, be he, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay, The righteousness of God is what gives us access to the Lord. And what happens when we have sin in our life as a Christian? What does it do? It hinders our prayers. So we work on our heart. We work on our life. We work on our surrender to the Lord. And it gives us this beautiful, incredible access. You and I, as children of God, have been given unprecedented access to God through prayer. There's never been a time ever in history that until after Christ, during this church age, that people have had access to God like we do. That veil's been torn. The separation's been made. And bottom line is this golden altar is a picture of the prayers of God's people just outside of the veil. And I'm telling you, man, we've been given this incredible access, and it's about time we took advantage of it. So many people don't pray like they should. We don't pray by faith. We don't trust God. We're not dependent upon Him. We're not crying out to God. We're bearing our burdens upon ourselves, and we're trying to work through it on our own. But God's saying, hey, you know what? I'm here for you. And let's allow our sweet Lord to do what He does, does best, which is do miraculous things, to do the impossible in our lives. Listen to the psalmist as an example of people crying out and giving praise to God. We're going to get a couple of psalms real quick. Psalm 30 verse 12 says this, To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee, and not, my, not be silent, O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. Psalm 75, 1. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks, for that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 3. I will extol thee, my God, O King. I will bless thy name forever and ever. 
Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 148, 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. Man, praise his name. So we get to worship God through the Spirit, through the Word, and through prayer in that holy place. But now we move on. Verse 6. And thou shalt set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. So now we're outside of the tent, okay? They've stepped out. They've hung the door. They've gotten outside. So now the tent of the tabernacle proper is here, and we're standing outside of it, okay? So what they're doing now is they're going to place this altar. Remember this outer court. We saw this before. This is a place of sacrifice and a place of cleansing. So we're going to follow God's instructions. Now what's happening? They're heading east. Remember, this thing's always going to be facing the east. So here's the doorway of the tabernacle proper. They're walking backwards. They're heading east as they're bringing this, this altar, and they're going to set it down so that it's facing the door of the tabernacle. Okay. Now, as they're doing this, we understand that this, this altar, as we talked about before, it's a picture of sacrifice. Now it represents two sacrifices. It represents the sacrifice of Christ, right? In, the, in regards to sacrificing our, our lives, Jesus sacrificing himself for the sins of the world, but it also represents our own personal sacrifice, which is us giving up our wants and desires, our fleshly lust that we might do the things of God. See, God's called us not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. God wants to use us as a vessel, something that his spirit can work through, that we can minister to the world. We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves unto the work of God. Galatians 5, 24 says this, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now, so when we go through the messy process of sacrifice, there's blood and all this from the animals, right? We're picturing this in the, in the Israelites. So all this stuff is on them. Well, they're going to need to be cleansed. Well, thankfully, God's got that covered. Look in this verse number seven. And thou shalt set the labor between the tent of the congregation and the altar that shalt, thou shalt put water therein. So God does all things properly, and he has, obviously, how they're going to be cleansed in place. So what happens is they place the altar here. Now what they're telling him, he tells them now, what I want you to do is I want you to find the midpoint between the, the doorway of the tabernacle, and I want you to go from the altar. Now set the labor right in the middle in between them. So when you leave this altar of sacrifice, you're going to go straight to the labor before you're going to go in to worship God, okay? This is very, very key. So the altar's there, so they're going to wipe off they're going to wash off the blood and the soot and all the stuff that's on them from this offering. And we saw that this altar is a place for, first of all, uh, it's a place of, of cleansing for the, for, the, for the lost person. Okay, It's a picture of Christ in the labor. What happens? He's going to wash the sins of their life away. It's not baptism. Baptism is not how we wash away our sins. It's nothing more than a picture of what it is that we've done in our hearts. Okay, So here we see it's a picture of that entry point for the lost person. But at the same time, it's also a picture of the Word of God. And here's where it's really key for us. So we go to the labor. And if you imagine this, this Israelite with stuff all over him, maybe splashed on his face, and he walks up to this labor, this big basin, and he looks into the basin, it reflects back to him and shows him. You know, he sees on his hands, but he's got some on his face. And he'll stay there and he'll wash himself off. And what the Bible does is the Bible reveals our sin, and at the same time, it's the same location where we get our spiritual cleansing. And it's important to realize that if we're not clean, we cannot worship God. If we're going into that holy place, that place of worship, 
and I'm still filthy. I best not walk in. The priests would die. But you and I, we, are, we, are doing, you know, we believe we're worshiping God. Oh, I'm, I worship God. I'm here worshiping. Yeah, I'm worshiping God. How can you have sin in your heart and know you're wrong with God and say you're worshiping God? That's like going to a party of a celebration. Let's say I got somebody at work, right? And it's their anniversary or it's their, 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 their what do you call it when you quit? You don't no, get quit. You finish. Retirement, that's the one. So you're retiring, right? But let's see, I've got such bad blood between them that we see each other in the hallway and I'm just like, I hate this guy. But am I going to show up to the party and be like, oh, man, congratulations. No. That's not going to be real. I cannot give this guy any kind of reverence because guess what? There's issues between us. Before the party, I need to go talk to him. Hey, you know what? I've been an idiot. <laughs> I need to get things right with you. I know we're getting ready to have a celebration for your retirement. And I just want you to know I was wrong. I just wanted to get this under the uh, water under the bridge, man. I just want us to be able to go forward because I want to be able to congratulate you. Right? How do we come and worship God if we're living in sin? We cannot. We're fooling ourselves. We might get an emotional experience from it. We might raise our hands and woohoo! But it's our heart is what God's looking at, right? If we're going to be right with God, we've got to be clean. And then there's a final aspect to the orderly assembly of this tabernacle as God gives instructions. And it's about sanctification, verse number eight, where we wrap up. Thou shalt set up the court round about and hang up the hanging at the court gate, okay? Pay attention to this. So the outer court, remember, it is to be separated from the wilderness. It's to be separated from the wilderness. It's supposed to be separated from the world. It's to be isolated. Okay, there's a picture here. What we see here is the rest of the camp is set apart. This, this tabernacle is set apart from everything else. What does the Bible say about us as believers, about being set apart? 2 Corinthians 6.17 Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Okay? He's saying, if you're coming in to the Holy of Holies, guess what? You need to start out there by separating yourself from this world because you know what? If you will and you'll touch not the unclean thing, then guess what I do? I will receive you. You can come right on in here. But if you've got issues in your heart and life and you're not willing to address them, don't fool yourself. You're not being accepted. God wants a close walk with God. So as we see these steps here that we've watched, right? Putting things in order. There's assembly instructions it all starts with separation. It all starts with a separation from the world and its influences. If we want to do any of these things, it's required to get that thing set up, right? And that's the problem so many of us have. Our walls are down. The world just walks in and out of our life. It has influence. It, has, it, has, it draws us. It, it, it compels us. We're influenced by the way the world looks, the way the world sounds. We speak like the world. We look like the world. We act like the world. And God says, you know what? It should be different. When you get inside that outer court, that's a place of sacrifice. That's a place of cleansing. Because I want to have you in the holy place. I want to receive your worship. And you know what I really want? I really want you to come in here with me. I really want to receive you. But we got to get out there first and deal with this separation. So God's got this, got everything planned out. All of this is laid out for a specific purpose. He's taking us down this road. Jeremiah 29, 11, we think about God having everything ready. We think about this, Jeremiah 29, 11, this is a verse that a lot of us are familiar with. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you 
an expected end. We hear that and we go, man, yes, God's got a plan. God's got a plan. Great. And a lot of times we stop right there. But the next two verses, listen to this. Jeremiah 29, 12, 13. Then once you've done that, once you understand the fact that, hey, I've got an expected course for you now, then shall you call upon me. You're going to do something and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. I'll hear you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. You see, God has a purpose and a plan for every aspect of our lives. Everything we're going through, we look at it and we go, why, why, why? We don't need to ask why. Trust that God has a plan and he's working in the midst of this plan. They don't argue with him. They don't go, well, you know what? Well, it should be this way. And couldn't the ark be over here? And couldn't we set it like this? And couldn't we put it up our way? Because it's not going to work. They're seeking the intimacy with God. You and I don't have the right to go, you know what, God, I'm going to do it my way. Because God says, look, I've told you, I've given you the instructions. Will you just do step one so we can move on to step two? Because this is going to get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And this relationship that we have is going to get more beautiful and more fulfilling. And you're going to love it so much. And where you feel distant and lost and broken and sad, I'm going to replace it with contentment and peace and love and ultimately joy. That when you go through the hardest times of life, you can have a smile on your face because you trust that God's in control. Some of us have a testimony of how God has worked through tragedy in our lives. And we go, how on earth did I survive? And God says, do you not realize that even in this adversity, I have a purpose and a plan. I'm going to work through this, and I'm going to draw you closer to me. It's things all working towards intimacy with God. That's what he's doing. And the sooner we grasp this, and the sooner we follow his plan for our lives instead of our own, the sooner we'll start to get to closer to that relationship that he's intended for us the entire time. Guys, he's drawing us. It's one thing to hear the instructions. It's another thing to know the instructions. But it's a whole other thing to follow the instructions. Many of us know what we should do. We know what we're supposed to do. We know how we're supposed to live. We just have to do it. It's not easy. But I can tell you the reward is he's coming. When we get to the end of this verse, he's there. And I don't know where you are in your walk. But he's given you instructions. He's given me instructions. Are we following that? Because when we do, we'll finally experience the abundant life that God has for us. And at that point, we'll finally have been successful at getting our house in order. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. And God, giving us a beautiful message, God, through the word, showing us just through your simple instructions on how the tabernacle is to be assembled, Lord, and all the pictures that are in God, you've taught us some incredible and deep truths. I pray that you'll help us, Lord, today to remember who it is we are and, Lord, uh, what it is you've called us to do and to be. Uh, Lord, this is a, a challenging world that we live in. God, if we allow it to guide us, we will find ourselves in a mess. 
But Lord, if we will deny this world, Lord, if we will seek to do those things that are pleasing to you, that if we'll seek to live a life, God, that's sanctified from this world, Lord, that if we'll deal with our own flesh, God, if we'll sacrifice our will and our desires for yours, God, if we will cleanse ourselves and, Father, walk into that place of worship, and, Lord, we will go to the Word, God. We will depend upon the Spirit, Father. We will pray earnestly. God will be able to step through the veil in the presence of God. And you tell us that you will receive us. Thank you for that promise. Help us, Lord, to work on ourselves. Help us to work on our lives that we might honor you and bring glory to your name. Thank you for what you've done today. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I, I don't know where I stand. If I thought about myself and the closeness to God, I can tell you I don't have it. Maybe I've never experienced it. Guys, 19 years ago, someone asked me if I knew for sure if I died, I was going to go to heaven. And I said, I hope so. But I had no idea. I was fearful. I was afraid of death. I didn't know what the future held. But the good news was the fact that God loved me right where I was. And in spite of myself, he was willing to receive me, to pay the debt that I could not pay. The Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And that's a reality. Every single person has the same issue, an issue of sin. And if we pay the price of that sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death. It's not just a physical death, it's a spiritual death. As God calls us, how do we, how do we deal with this? See, the good news is God loves us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the next part says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a gift offered to the world. No matter who you are, no matter if you're watching this recorder, you're watching this on the other side of the world, it doesn't take a preacher to receive Christ. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you and God's word. And as he speaks to your heart, if you will respond, he will save you. You can face eternity without him and suffer, or you can face eternity with the confidence of knowing that you're a child of the king. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be saved, not could be saved. It is a promise from God. That person who will call out to God earnestly and trust him, he will save them. It's not a ceremony. It's not a magic prayer. It's a matter of the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you've received Christ and you know for, for, a, for a fact that you've prayed and you've asked Jesus to save you, Praise God. Give thanks for the glory of being his child. But if you've never done that, and you're like I was 19 years ago, and you were afraid, and you said, I don't know what the future holds. That night, I bowed my head, and I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart, and he changed my forever. And he can do the same thing for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Again, it's not the words of the prayer. God's listening to your heart. If you're sincere when you pray, it's done. If you're insincere, if you do it because it's a ceremony or you believe there's some magic to it, you may as well just keep it to yourself. It's a waste of time. So their heads bowed and their eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. If you're in this room, pray in your heart, in your mind. This isn't for anybody else to hear. It's between you and God. And uh, allow you to speak. Let him, let him speak to your heart. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry for my sin. I know that you love me. And that you died for me. And you give me a way 
out of my damnation, out of my penalty, by way of your blood. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me a home in heaven. God, I trust you, and I'm thanking you for what you've done in my heart right now. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Head still bowed, eyes still closed.